Well, that verse, Isaiah 42.1, is where we take um, the name of this series, The Chosen One. Uh, it's a verse that God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he said this, in case you couldn't read it on the screen, Isaiah 42.1, here is my servant whom I uphold, uh, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And we now have the hindsight, uh, 2,000 years later, those of us who've really studied the scriptures, uh, to see that Jesus is the chosen one, that, that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies, these things that were predicted about him hundreds or even thousands of years uh, before his birth. Uh, but when Jesus walked the earth, what we've said is there were a lot of questions about who he really was. Uh, not everyone, uh, not even most of the Jewish people uh, at the time really believed that Jesus was the chosen one that was written about. Uh, and even the people that grew up knowing this prophecy and knowing that there was this, uh, this person coming, this Messiah that was coming, uh, not a lot of them believed that Jesus was the one who fulfilled these prophecies. Now, even today, um, I'm sure you know that many people have questions about who Jesus really was. And so what we're doing over these five weeks uh, of this series is we're looking at these statements that Jesus made during his lifetime. These statements where he said, I am, dot, dot, dot. And we're looking at the five of these statements. There were several of them, but we're looking at five of them to see um, who better than Jesus to tell us who Jesus really was. And so the one we've come to today on this Palm Sunday um, probably presents the biggest stumbling block uh, for most people with Christianity. It's the one that makes people call our belief system, okay, my belief system, into question. It it makes us look exclusive. It makes us look intolerant. But it's also the one that I think is the most critical to really understanding who Jesus was and what that means for our life and what comes after. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open them to John chapter 14. Uh, We're going to spend the entire morning on one verse. And uh, this verse happens, it's the night of the Last Supper. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, so it's after Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem uh, preparing to be crucified. Uh, The Last Supper is the night before uh, he was arrested. And so Jesus and his disciples had finished eating. Judas had already left the table going to go betray Jesus. Um, Jesus had walked with his disciples for about three years, and they really thought that they knew who he was. Right? You know somebody for three years, you kind of think you know who they were, especially if you're living with them, working with them, walking with them, going wherever they go. But this night, Jesus starts saying some things that they don't really understand. He, he's saying things like, uh, one of the 12 says, says this, he says, uh, Lord, we don't know the way that you are going. Show us the way. And then this is how Jesus responded. This is the verse we'll camp on today in John 14, 6. He says this, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. There it is, the stumbling block from Jesus, the game changer. All right, these men have been walking with Jesus for three years, uh, and they know that when he says the Father, that he's talking about God. And so these men have seen some amazing things as they've walked with Jesus. They've, they've heard incredible teaching from their rabbi and friend, but now he says that he is the way to God. The only way to God. And you know that that one brash and outrageous statement had to have them call into question everything that they knew and believed about Jesus and everything that he had been teaching them all along. See, at the time, the Jewish followers of Jesus would have believed that the way to God was through following the law. 
uh, or the 613 laws uh, from the Torah, or what we now call the first five books of the Old Testament. That was the Jewish holy scriptures at the time. And when they violated one of these laws, there were any number of uh, things that they could do, any number of priests they could have gone to to offer a sacrifice that could have uh, cleared their name with God. But now their friend, uh, their, their teacher, their rabbi, says that he is the only way to get to the Father, to get to God. And you know that they had to have questions. I mean, what a very controversial, uh, what a divisive statement to make back then. And you know what? It still is, isn't it? And so what happened after that? Well, very soon after that, Jesus was arrested. He, he was brought before the high priest and before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Jerusalem at the time. And he was sentenced. He was tried. He was found innocent, but still sentenced to be crucified. And the 11 men that were still part of his entourage kind of uh, disappeared into the woodwork. They started running for their lives. Uh, Even Peter, who who was his closest friend of Jesus, uh, who just the night before had said, No, Lord, I will never deny you, uh, did it three times that night. And uh, the, the disciples saw him beaten. And they saw him crucified. They watched as he uh, slowly and painfully died on a Roman cross. And they said nothing. And they did nothing. And at this point, it would have been very easy uh, for the story of Jesus to die along with the person of Jesus. I mean, these men could have gone back to their old lives and back to their families and, and reminisced fondly about the three years that they spent with Jesus and kept it to themselves because they didn't want to have the same fate, all right, await them as awaited Jesus. But they didn't. They didn't keep quiet about it. They didn't go back to their own lives, and and it didn't die. In fact, the story grew because Jesus didn't stay dead, and the men didn't stay quiet, and Christianity took over much of Jerusalem and and then uh, much of the Roman Empire and eventually much of the world, even up until today, where fully one-third of the world's population, about two billion people, uh, call themselves Christians, people who believe that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And I want to talk about that. Okay, that's what I want to talk about today. How did this small group, I mean, this, this connection group-sized group of men, eventually become the world's dominant religion? And, and why it makes sense for you to believe that too. But before we do that, I want to take some time, and what I want to do this morning is look at three major arguments that people have against Jesus being the way and the truth and the life. And I think that what we'll see is they just don't add up. And so I put these in your worship program, um, which is kind of weird for me, I think, to put uh, notes in your worship program that go against what I'm trying to teach you. But hopefully you'll see these things as you write them down. You'll see them in the future, and you'll remember uh, what we talked about about those. So the first argument is this. Aren't all religions alike? Aren't all religions alike? I mean, how can Jesus be the only way when all of the major religions seem to have a path to God? They have a similar path to God, even some people would say. Now, to address this, we need some background. All right, I'm going to do a little teaching, okay? And so we'll, a little less preaching, a little more teaching. There are five major world religions, okay? Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism. Uh, most, most experts would agree those are the five major world religions. They account for 85% of the world's population, 85%. It seems natural then to want to believe that uh, these religions adherents, all starting from the same place, uh, could all end up together in heaven. Well, let's take a closer look. First of all, Hinduism doesn't teach of a heaven. 
uh, doesn't believe in one God, but many gods, each of them taking a different form. And, and there's no heaven, but there's a, a form of reincarnation uh, where you can move up and down to a different level of society, a different level of life, a different level of status based on your life's performance. So if you do really well in this life, uh, you'll take a higher life form the next time. If you do really poorly, uh, you'll be a, a dog or a fish or a cat, like down at the bottom, right? So um, that's what happens in, in life. That's a joke, Okay. Not a cat person. Uh, totally different. Hinduism's totally different. Buddhism doesn't believe in God at all. And, and I have to laugh sometimes when people talk about the uh, leave Christianity for the simplicity of Buddhism. Anyone who thinks that Buddhism is simple uh, hasn't read much on the, the three gems or the four noble truths or the four bodhisattvas or the fivefold path or the five precepts or the ten paramitas or the four sublime states or the five spiritual faculties or the five bases of mindfulness or the six realms and the three signs of existence uh, that are all part of Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't teach of a heaven but of a place called nirvana where we all dress in flannel and sing grunge music, right? No, nirvana is a freedom from suffering which you can reach on your own if you follow all of baptism's tenets, but you have to learn them first, right? And so that leaves Christianity, Judaism, and Islam as the three religions that basically believe in a God that in some way holds people accountable uh, for their behavior and their belief. And so many people will look at these three and assume that they're basically the same. I mean, after all, Jesus was a Jew. I mean, he taught at synagogues, he taught at temples, and so they have to be close to the same. And Muslims, a lot of Muslims will claim that they worship the same God as Christians. And you may not know why that happens, so here's why. Uh, If you read in your Bible the book of Genesis, uh, Genesis talks of a man named Abraham. Uh, Abraham, who in many ways is the father of all three of these religions, uh, was promised by God that he and his wife Sarah would have as many descendants as stars in the sky. God was promising him he would be the father of a great nation, the nation that we would know as Israel. But when it didn't happen on time, uh, Abraham took matters into his own hands. And he had a son named Ishmael as a result of an affair that he had with his wife's servant. Actually, his wife gave his servant over to be married to Abraham, um, a, a woman by the name of Hagar. Now, side note, how many times do we get tired of waiting on God and take matters into our own hands? We find out from this story it doesn't work out very well. Maybe you know uh, from this story in Genesis chapter 15, but God had promised Abraham a family, but he promised her through Sarah. And so later, after Ishmael was born, God allowed Sarah to have children, and her very, her very first son was born, a man by the name of Isaac, or a boy, a little boy by the name of Isaac at the time. Uh, Sarah became very jealous, and she expelled Ishmael from the land. But God said that Ishmael would have a nation of his own, And then if you can read this in Genesis 15, he says that he would have great hostility against his brothers, all right, the the descendants of Isaac, the people who would become known as the nation of Israel. And so Muhammad, the founder of Islam, claims to be a descendant of Ishmael. You know, and you'll see all throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel is fighting with these other nations that collectively are known as Ishmaelites. And then here along comes this, uh, the, the, quote, prophet Muhammad, who um, is the founder of Islam, and he says that he's a descendant of Ishmael. So you, if you ever think that you have the answer for all the world wars, here's what I want you to know. God says there will always be conflict between Christians and Muslims, Always. And so many people, though, still look at these three faiths and say that they're basically the same, that none of them can have the exact right doctrine. So somewhere in the mix is an answer. And since no one really has a monopoly on truth, then maybe I'll just pick and choose uh, what I want out of these and what I want out of my life, and, and I'll pick my own 
uh, belief system. Well, ironically, the idea that no, I, no religion holds truth is a religion in itself. It's a set of beliefs that you tend to live by. It's a belief system. And so to say that none of these three contain the truth or all of them are very similar or I can take what I want out of these faiths, well, what's true for you can't, doesn't have to be true for me, well, that just makes no sense. I mean, if you go so far as to believe that there's a God and it's a God that's powerful enough to create the earth and everything in it and the heavens, if that's true, then he or she or it uh, has to have some characteristics, some physical characteristics, some character characteristics. We can't just pick and choose the things that we want to put on God, right? If God created us, we can't then turn around and create him or her or it. God created us. So let me give you an example, okay? Because you've heard people say, well, you believe what you, you want about God, and I'll believe what I want about God, right? But I'm trying to tell you, God has some characteristics that we can't change. So let me give you an example. You have a friend, and you decide to set her up on a blind date, all right? And so she asks you what he looks like, and you say, well, he's tall, and he's muscular with dark hair, and he has a nice smile, and he's very musical. He's very talented. And when she gets there... He looks less like Adam Levine and more like Adam Sandler. (laughs) If you were to say, well, you believe what you want to believe about him, and I'll believe what I want to believe about him, that wouldn't make any sense, right? She would think you're crazy. Well, because God has some characteristics, some physical features uh, that distinguish him, If you go so far as to believe that there is one, he's got to have some of these characteristics. And so to say that God is, for instance, distant and judgmental, but he could also be close and loving, well, that just doesn't make any sense. Christianity teaches of a God who loved the world so much that he came here in the form of Jesus and lived a human life and died a very real human death so that we could be in relationship with him. A Muslim would never go for that. So it can't be the same God. And so to say that all religions are equally valid and ignores the major doctrinal differences in each, it's very naive and it doesn't work. Okay, so the second argument is this. Don't all good people go to heaven? This seems to make sense, right? It's how it's portrayed in the media. In fact, if you got all of your religious information from movies or sitcoms, um, this is what you'd believe. You save a puppy, you go to heaven, right? You you tell a lie and you're stuck, Uh, going to hell or you're struck by lightning you know somebody tells a lie oh i'm staying away from you here comes the lightning bolt right that's what we see in popular media i think this idea appeals to us though this idea of good people going to heaven because it seems fair if there's a good god he lives in a good place and he lives there with good people and because he wants good people that this idea is less about what you believe it's not at all about what you believe it's how you behave here on earth it seems fair But let me remind you, I don't have to tell you this. If you've been living any amount of time on earth, you know this. Just because it's fair doesn't mean it's true. You know that? Have you learned that in your life? But I want to examine this idea, even the idea that good people go to heaven is fair. Is it really fair? If so, how good is good enough? I mean, let me ask you this. If if I were to ask you, why should you go to heaven? What would you say? Well, because I never, because I always try to, because I do my best at, I mean, does that do it? If good people go to heaven, how good do you have to be? Do you have to get a 90? Like high school, you have to get an A to get in? Is that the deal? Like a grading scale? What about a, what about a C? What about a solid C? 
your solid C student, if you get a 70%, you know, 70% good, 30% bad, does that do it? What about 50%? What about 50% plus one? Maybe that makes sense. Like if I do one more good thing in my life, it's like a scale, right? If I do one more good thing in my life than bad thing, then that tips the scales. And, and, and who decides? I mean, does God decide? If it's God, it would be nice if he were just a little bit clearer on this whole thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if it were fair, wouldn't there be some clarity for us in all of this? When I took, uh, was a freshman in college, I took my very first engineering class. It was a class called Statics and Dynamics. And uh, my very first test in that class, out of 100 possible points, I got a 32. That's an F in case you didn't go to college. <laughs> I didn't think it was fair. The highest score in the class was a 47, which is also an F. It wasn't fair. But that didn't mean it wasn't true. I did a little better the second time I took that class, by the way. <laughs> so let's assume, okay, let's assume that God is extremely merciful, which he is. And the threshold is only 10%. If, if 10% of your deeds in your life are good, then you're in. Well, first of all, that means there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that we don't really expect to see there, Okay. But second, even if the threshold is as low as 10%, there are going to be people who miss it by just one deed. One good thing that they didn't do. Their whole eternity is decided by one time that they forgot to walk the lady across the street. Or one time that they didn't give a dollar to that homeless person on the street corner. Just one good deed. No matter where you set the bar, some people would just barely miss it. And thinking of those people would likely be, if I'd only known. God, if you'd only told me how good I would have to be, I would have done it. It's not fair. Well, okay then, maybe it's not about deeds, really. Maybe instead it's about the law. Maybe it is. Maybe the Jewish people were right. Maybe it's, about, maybe it's not about doing the things that God tells us to do. Maybe it's about not doing the things that he tells us not to do. And so, you know, let's, let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. God gave us these ten laws in the Old Testament, ten things you should know. They're found in Exodus chapter 20, and they're very simple. Uh, have no other gods other than God. Uh, don't have any idols. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're all really good at that. Uh, honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his lawn or his brand new Dixie Chopper zero-turn radius motor with a 40-inch deck, Right? You know where my mind is this morning. It's only 10 things, but I'll bet none of us have kept them all. But let me relieve your guilt in that. <laughs> Do you realize that there's nothing in Scripture that talks about, in the Ten Commandments, nothing anywhere that says anything about what your eternity looks like if you keep them? And you realize there's nothing in any of the Ten Commandments, there's nothing anywhere that tells you, makes one promise about anything that happens if you don't keep them. In fact, there's only one promise in Scripture that talks about, that's related with the Ten Commandments, and it's found in the Fifth Commandment. It's Exodus twenty twelve. It says this, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Now, I have to tell you, I knew this growing up because my dad always told me that. He said, boy, if you don't honor me, you ain't going to live very long. That's what this verse says. <laughs> I didn't know it was biblical, Okay. 
but I knew to follow it. There's a student somewhere here that needed to hear that this morning. So there are no promises for us for following the Ten Commandments, but this is the Jewish view. Okay, when we look at the law, we look at the Torah, or what we now know as the five books of the five, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's the Holy Scripture for the Jewish religion. There are 613 laws in the Torah, and many Jewish boys would have had them memorized by their 13th birthday, but there's no promise of eternal life for memorizing them. There's none for following them, and there's no talk of eternal punishment for breaking them. And so the Apostle Paul, who was raised... A Jew, raised, grew up as a Jewish boy, would have learned and memorized these scriptures. And by the time that he came around uh, to know Christ, he was beginning to understand this. And in a letter that he wrote to the church in Rome, he wrote this. He said in Romans 3.20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Paul says the law isn't any good for... Um, telling us where we're going to go when we die. It's only good for reminding us how sinful we are. There's one other thing about this fairness issue of good people go to heaven, and it's this. No matter what the rules are, and we've already said we don't know, no matter where the bar is, and we haven't been told that, there will come a point in many of our lives where we can no longer get there. You know, for many of us, there'll be a time, if this were true, where we'd have either done so many bad things or where we'd miss so many opportunities to do good things that we don't have enough time to do enough stuff to get us into heaven. And that wouldn't be fair. I think this leads us to the third common argument against Jesus being the only way. And it's this. um, Isn't that view a little narrow-minded? Isn't it arrogant to think that you have the only answer? In fact, a lot of people would say, Isn't it unfair that Jesus is the way and the true and the life? And let's examine that. In light of everything else that Jesus taught, is this narrow-minded? Yes. Is it arrogant? Well, maybe, unless it's true. You see, Jesus' teachings really put us in a difficult position. You can't really just pick up some of it and leave the rest of it. And some of the things that he said, that he taught, some of them are really brilliant. You know, turn the other cheek. We love that. What a great idea. Love your enemies. A little unconventional, but great advice, right? Love your enemies. That'll teach them, you know? The people who walked with Jesus got to hear his teaching, and they said that he taught as one who had authority. They saw miracles performed, and they had never seen anything like it, but then they heard this, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and they're forced to decide. Like, who is this guy, really? Is he intolerant? Is he crazy? Or is he the son of God? But beyond Jesus' words sounding intolerant, there's something else that bothers us about this idea that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. I mean, what about people who weren't fortunate enough to be born in a Christian country? What about people who are born to Hindus in India or Buddhists or, or atheists? How could a loving God allow that many people not to find him just because they don't believe in Jesus? I mean, doesn't God care about those people? Would a loving God reject someone who is decent and kind just because they practice a different faith? Can I just say that I don't know the answer to that? I don't know exactly why God lets things work out the way he does, but I will admit that there's no way that I care more about those people than God does. There's no way I'm more compassionate to Hindus than the God who created them. 
There's no way I care more for atheists than God does. And you know what? You don't either. But here's what I know. First, going back to something I said earlier, just because it's not fair doesn't mean it's not true. You know that. But let's take a look at this fairness issue one more time. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I say that's the fairest way of all. I mean, first of all, everyone is welcome. Right? John 3, 16 said that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So the door's open to everyone. Everybody gets in the same way. There's no secret line. There's no end around play. There's no footnote. Anybody who's going to come to the Father is going to come through the exact same door. And the third thing is everybody can meet the requirements. You know, we see this in the scripture as we read the story of the crucifixion. We see that Jesus is in a cross in the center on to the left and to the right. There are two criminals, two revolutionaries probably. And, and one of them is mocking Jesus and he's, he's yelling things at him. He's saying, you're, if you're the son of God, get yourself down and get us, too, get us down too. And the other criminal turns and looks at him and says, don't you know what you're saying? And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In this incredibly powerful moment when Jesus turns to this man who's done everything in his life wrong. He's got no history to be proud of. He's got no religious background. He's got probably no scriptural training. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Because of your faith, because of your proclamation, because I am the way and the truth and the life, I can promise you that you will have heaven today. And truly, that's the fairest way of all. And so here's what happened. Jesus defeated death. He came back to the grave and he appeared to many people. He first appeared to his disciples and then to other followers and eventually to the general public, this dead man in front of the public. In fact, in a letter to the church in Corinth, Paul, the apostle Paul tells people about one time where Jesus appeared to over 500 people at once after he had died. He came and appeared in front of 500 people and Paul says, if you don't believe me, go talk to them. Most of them are still alive when he wrote that letter. And so after the disciples see Jesus alive, after they see him dead, uh, they are emboldened. And these men who were cowards just week before, they were hiding. These men start going from place to place and preaching the name of Jesus and they keep getting in trouble for it. But they keep doing it. In one encounter and captured in the book of Acts, we see why they keep at it. In Acts 4, 18, uh, they're on trial in front of the religious leaders. And it says, then they, that's the religious leaders, called them, uh, Peter and John, in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. And then he says this, and this is brilliant. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's not because of what they believed. It's not because of what they thought or what they felt. What made all the difference to the disciples is what they saw and what they heard. And because of that, they could no longer deny that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. Even today, maybe the best reason for you to believe Jesus is what you've seen and what you've heard. 
Like in my life, I know what my life was like before Jesus and I know what it's like now and I'm telling you that now is so much better. I I have friends. I saw my friends before they knew Jesus and I see them now and they're happier. Now they have purpose. Now they have hope and I can't stop talking about Jesus because of what I have seen and what I have heard. And I've got to tell you, when I was looking for God, when I was pursuing Jesus and he was pursuing me, God didn't answer all of my questions. He didn't answer all of my logical arguments. In fact, he still hasn't answered all of my questions. But my life with Jesus has been so much better than my life without him. See, the thing about all of this, the, the cross, the resurrection, it forces a decision. His teaching forces a decision. You know, you believe in God, that's great. What do you do with Jesus? In his book, Mere Christianity, the great author C.S. Lewis said it this way. I've used this quote so many times. I know some of you have heard me preach before are probably tired of this, but I just can't stop thinking about how brilliant this is. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what about you? What do you believe about Jesus? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he, as he claimed, the son of God, the one way, the truth, and the life? You have to decide. You get to choose. But what you decide makes all the difference in your life and in what comes after. He paid the price for you. He paved the way to eternal life for you. Maybe you just need to remember that today. Or maybe you need to respond for that very first time to that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for hard teachings. I'm thankful for the way that uh, in your last days on earth that you didn't avoid what needed to be said, that you didn't hold back from what we needed to hear, God, but that uh, instead you were bold and you told us exactly the way to have eternal life. I thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who made that decision months or years ago that we would be reminded today that you are the way and the truth and the life, that you have the answers we need, that you have the wisdom we need. You are the prize that we seek after. God, I'm so thankful for that, that when I look at things in my life and we all look at things in our lives that seem to be the prize that we should be chasing, that we can be reminded that, no, no, you're the prize. You're what we need to pursue. You have the answer. You are the way and the truth and the life. And God, for the people in this room that are struggling with that, that wrestle with that, that they don't know where they stand with with Jesus, Lord, I pray that you'd embolden this week. Would you surround them with people who can show them the love and the mercy that that you gave during your life? I pray that 
even during this last worship set, Lord, that you would touch our hearts, that you would bring us to a place where we could know and accept that you are the way and the truth and the life and that other things in our life don't matter as much as getting that decision right, that that one decision to, to follow you, to accept your lordship, God, that that's the most important thing we can do. We thank you, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.